All right, everyone. Uh, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Crypto Muay Thai podcast. Uh, I'm Christopher Brookins, your host. Obviously, we'll be here talking about a variety of topics with a particular emphasis on all things cryptocurrency, blockchain, and also some more fun topics like martial arts as well. Uh, today, for my first guest for the episode, I'm very fortunate to have Daniel Moross with me. He is the CEO of Alt-Tangent Labs, and he is also a partner at Maximalist Capital, an investment fund uh, focusing on Bitcoin as well. Daniel has a very storied history um, from producing one of the original documentaries on Bitcoin uh, that were ever produced, and he has been involved basically since the inception of what has become uh, a global movement, not just of Bitcoin, but also alternative forms of uh, mediums exchange, assets, uh, stores of value, blockchain, uh, pretty much everything that you see now within the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, Daniel was right there at the spearhead uh, for. So with that further ado, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. All right, Christopher, thanks for having me. But uh, honored to be your first guest on the podcast. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's, it's the Pittsburgh connection. So uh, we're very lucky um, to have a lot of smart people uh, within a stone's throw of our, of our great city. So today, um, I want to have a conversation and essentially have you and walk me, but also the listeners, essentially through your entire journey. Because as I mentioned earlier, you've got a very long and storied history and a very interesting history um, with this space. So I want to kind of take that piece by piece. Obviously, we'll, we'll ask a few questions and we'll continue to move along the path. But first, um, tell the audience, you know, a little bit about yourself, maybe a little bit about your background, and then also, um, you know, fast forward to where you are today. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, it all goes back to when my parents uh, picked up a personal computer and I put down my bass guitar and started hacking around on the computer. Um, I, uh, most of my career, I was a database administrator. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I wish I could say I was there from the very inception of Bitcoin, but I actually didn't really get into it until around early 2011. Um, but what attracted me to the space was, you know, I had, uh, I, I kind of, uh, um, was a fan of Ron Paul kind of, you know, started paying attention to a little bit of uh, politics that were going on uh, when he was actually running for president. And it was really the first time I kind of looked into or even thought about, uh, you know, monetary policy, central banks, all those things that, you know, to me were nothing more than like a history lesson in school was something I kind of really was looking into. I was like, huh, that's how that works. I never really thought about money. I never really thought about how all these things go. And, Ron Paul was a big uh, proponent of, you know, the gold standard or, you know, sound money. And I didn't really know what those things were. And, um, you know, I was interested in what Ron Paul was always talking about. So uh, I, I looked uh, at one point, I read that he was influenced by a book called The Road to Serfdom by Friedrich Hayek. And uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll read that book. And I read The Road to Serfdom. And it was kind of like a little bit of an epiphany for me. And that's kind of what really started getting me interested in, in a lot of the uh, aspects of you know, money and, and society and politics and all those things together. Um, when I first heard about Bitcoin, uh, a friend of mine told me about it. He was like, hey, man, there's this thing called Bitcoin. It's like this digital money. You should really check this out. It sounds like something that you'd really be into. And I was like, ah, oh, OK, I'll check it out sometime. Sure. And uh, and then like about a month later, he was like, dude, 
you, you got to really check out this Bitcoin. Did you check it out? I told you about it. I was like, no, I didn't. He was like, man, you're missing out. You have to like look into this. And so I looked into it and I was like, oh man, this is actually kind of interesting. This is like a, a database that's money that's, wait, and uh, you know, there's some distributed computing here going on. And uh, you know, before that, working as a database administrator, I, I, I was always into these uh, distributed computing projects, you know, like the SETI at home, finding aliens or whatever. And uh, I was I was particularly into the protein folding ones, the first uh, the first ones where they were trying to get, uh, you know, they were like, hey, we got the internet, we've got all these computers, let's take all these computers and have them solve a problem and we can basically, you know, have all these computers act as one big supercomputer. And so I was I was the guy in, 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 my, in my cubicle that had like six computers under the desk and they were all doing protein folding and people were like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we're gonna cure cancer and not. Uh, so, you know, when, when, I, when I started reading about Bitcoin, I was like, oh, this is like a money database. Oh, and there's, there's a bunch of distributed uh, computing processing going on. This is, this is relevant to all my interests, it seems. And, um, you know, started reading more and more about it. And like a lot of people use the term and I have to use it as well as a rabbit hole. And I fell into it. And, uh, you know, my, my wife will back me and say that, you know, that there, there was a day when I had this aha moment and nothing was the same ever, ever again. I, I spent uh, way too much uh, time thinking and talking about Bitcoin ever, ever since then. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's, it's a sentiment that is second, uh, obviously by me, but also by a lot of people that are within this space or, you know, like, tell me more about this. It's a very slippery slope to where if you find that it hits all of those adjacent interests that you might have had, whether it be personally or professionally, or obviously experience-wise as well, um, it's gonna it, it's gonna take you down, just like you said, a rabbit hole very very quickly, and your life will never be the same. And what I think is super interesting is it encompasses a lot of different things. So it hit at uh, you know an intersection of a lot of different things for you, but those are entirely different than all the things that it hit for me where I would essentially have the same exact story and say, oh, it hit this, it hit that, it hit you know monetary theory, economics, it hits analytics, it's financial markets and all those things. So I think that's another thing that makes um, Bitcoin, but also this space so, um, so attractive and also so contagious uh, at the same exact time. It's still okay to, to say contagious in, in this you know, time I mean, it era. Is. <laughs> I would say it's contagious. Uh, look, Bitcoin is Bitcoin is viral, and it has to be in its very nature. Uh, I, I was one of the things I always like to think about is you know Bitcoin has grown to where it is today, and it's been completely voluntary a hundred percent of the time. And you know, as as, a, as somebody who you know would say I'm, I'm libertarian in a lot of my principles, voluntarism or voluntary interaction is something that you know is a very core foundational principle that I believe in, and uh, you know, the fact that Bitcoin's gotten this big and nobody's been forced to use it. No government has forced anybody to use Bitcoin. It's just 100%. It's an option. It's out there. If you want to use it, you are welcome to use it. And there's nobody that will stop you from using it. Or, well, depending on where you live, maybe there's some people that will try to stop you, but you, they'll have a hard time. And that, that uh, you know, that openness is, is really uh, in that ability you know, to grow this to this size purely from people's, you know, voluntary participation is something I think that's really amazing about Bitcoin. 
I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I couldn't agree more. So tell me about some of the early days. So you had your friend sort of introduced you to the concept, but also, um, you know, at, at that point, I believe some, you know, some of the original Bitcoin were being minted at the time. So it was beyond a concept, beyond the white paper. Um, you know, it was an early stage technology was that there. So what, what was your initial foray after you went down the rabbit hole of reading and understanding? How did you initially get your hands wet? I mean, I had, so the, uh, at the time, you know, in 2011, the, the, the kind of center of the, of the Bitcoin universe, at least in terms of people socially interacting about it, uh, was, was IRC. And then on the web, it was Bitcoin Talk, the Bitcoin Talk discussion forum. Um, Bitcoin Talk has just an amazing archive of Bitcoin history there. It's, you know, a lot of the old discussions are still there. Um, I was pretty, you know, I had used a lot of bulletin boards and forums on the web for many years. I was into cars and things like that in the <laughs> past. So we had, you know, all, all pretty familiar with etiquette and, and those types of things. So I, I started just spending a lot of time on Bitcoin talk um, and just reading a lot there and just trying to, you know, have these mini epiphanies one after another when you finally, you know, you've been into Bitcoin for a few weeks and then you're like, oh, that's how that thing works. Now I get it. All these other things make sense now. Um, but in the Bitcoin uh, community there on Bitcoin talk, uh, you know, it was a little microcosm of, you know, little marketplaces. People were buying and selling computer parts for Bitcoin. Uh, mining, you know, GPU mining had, uh, had been a thing for a couple of months and um, there was a lot of kind of churn there. So uh, initially, I think my first one of my first posts on, on Bitcoin talk, I, I wanted to get some Bitcoin and I sold a, an Amazon gift card. I had a hundred dollar Amazon gift card that I sold to somebody and I gave them the code and they sent me Bitcoin for it. But, um, but prior to that, there was a, there was a guy here in Pittsburgh who, um, who runs, I think, I, I want to say it's the oldest Bitcoin business in existence. Uh, it's an MMO called Dragon's Tale. Um, and he was writing MMOs before this, um, but uh, he was the first one that in integrated uh, Bitcoin into into the game. And so, um, you know, he I think that I think it's still running. But uh, I went up to his office one day and I said, uh, and this was before I was on the forums. I said, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin. And so I went up there and I handed him some cash and I installed the software on my computer and he sent me some Bitcoin. We waited while the blockchain synced there. And, and all of a sudden I had this little thing and it was like, oh, I think it was like a hundred Bitcoin or something like that. And it was like, oh, there you go. I'm like, okay. So either I just like wasted a lot of money and this is really stupid. It wasn't a lot of money. Bitcoins were like, I think, I think it was 500 bucks or something that I spent, which I mean, it was, you know, it was like, I hope I didn't waste that. But, um, you know, I'm like, oh, now I have a number on my laptop. Uh, and so... I went home and I remember sitting there staring at it for a while and I'm like, so what, what can I do with this now? Like, do I just let it sit here? What, what's the point of this? And uh, so I started looking at websites and I'm like, oh, well, you know, Bitcoin. And there was like these uh, wikis that had indexes of different sites that, you know, accepted Bitcoin. And, you know, some of the old famous ones were there like, oh, you can buy alpaca, alpaca socks for Bitcoin. But there were a lot of these like weird, sketchy little gambling sites. So it was like a coin flip site where you like you send a Bitcoin in and then you hit a button and then it would flip the coin. And if it was heads or tails, you win or you lost. And you doubled <laughs> or you lost it. Uh, or these like, uh, you know, just other little casino games and things like that. 
And so I was like, okay, well, you know, I can, I'll play some of these games and, you know, I, I spent like almost half the Bitcoins playing these dumb games and being like, oh, this is what you can do with this. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a funny story now. I mean, I look back at it and go, mm, I really shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, one thing to understand is in those days, people didn't value Bitcoin. People didn't know what to do with it. It was just, okay, you know, this is these tokens. Uh, it was like, I mean, my, my buddy who I bought them from in his game, uh, you can watch YouTube videos. People were spending, you know, 100, 500 Bitcoins at a time buying like virtual flower seeds and planting them in a virtual garden and stuff. <laughs> It's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but um, at the time it was, you know, nobody, nobody really knew what to do with it. And it was just, it was toy money. It was tinkering around. And, uh, but on the forums, uh, I got really into, I started getting into mining. Um, you know, I had, I had a, I had a computer, a, a gaming computer, then I had two uh, NVIDIA cards that, you know, I geeked out and put them in SLI for, for faster frame rates or whatever. And there was some mining software and it was, hey, if you have uh, graphics cards, you can, you can mine a lot faster than with a uh, CPU. So I, I downloaded that and I started playing with that. I think it was G, 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 GPU miner or GUI miner or something. It was a Windows miner. And I uh, started mining uh, and, you know, earned, you know, at the end of the day, I earned a Bitcoin or something like that mining. I was like, oh, this is cool. I can just leave this thing running in the background. And, uh, you know, after a week or so, I was like, hey, this is really cool. And that, by that time, I'd started reading some more, um, you know, oh, this could, this could maybe go somewhere. So I remember calling my brother, who was in college at the time, one of my brothers. And I was like, hey, you have a pretty, pretty badass gaming computer, don't you? So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you this, this, this software with a config file. Can you, can you run this on your computer before you leave for spring break and just leave your computer running? And, uh, and he did. And I think he ended up mining a few Bitcoins as well. Um, but I think he forgot about it and those, those, those were lost somewhere. <laughs> Cause I don't know, back, keep in mind just again, back then, you know, a lot of people didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and then I think everything kind of really came to a head when you first started seeing some of the bubbles happen in the market. Um, my first bubble in Bitcoin uh, was, it was actually a little bit later, but it was right when the we had a big shoot up and the price spiked and it went all the way to something like thirty dollars. And people were like, "Holy smokes!" You know, this was this was five dollars, and now all of a sudden it's thirty dollars. Uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty significant gain. And I remember when that happened, I sold enough Bitcoin to buy a hundred dollar Amazon gift card, and I remember saying, "Oh, cool! Now at least I I got that hundred dollar Amazon gift card back that I sold a long time ago." And you know, I can't. I, now I'm playing with house money. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lose that hundred dollars. So, um, and uh, you know, those of course in the long run are, are the things, those cycles that really seem to be one of the viral properties that attracts people to Bitcoin. Is you know, it goes through these crazy cycles of appreciation and. It's just part of its bootstrapping method. It's also not to not to cut you off from your story because I want to keep going on that line of logic. But um, I think it's also a property of what you would constitute as free markets. You know, um, e more so even in the early days, like there's no central uh, governing body that keeps Bitcoin on the rails. And you know, going back to some of the early Austrian economics uh, that you're sort of talking about, for those who aren't familiar. 
um, Hayek is, is a disciple of this branch of economics called Austrian economics. And they are probably what you would categorize as the closest thing to free market capitalism um, in its purest form from an economic standpoint. So I don't want to take anyone down that particular path, but if you're interested, there's tons of reference books, obviously the one that Daniel um, referenced as well. But I, I think that is what makes Bitcoin and also the market cycles very much like uh, high exuberance and then a resulting crash, but also at the same exact time. Why it's persisted over essentially an eight year period. Let's just say that it formally started trading around 2012 and now we're in 2020 and we've still seen uh, with relatively consistency, these sort of bursts and exuberance and cycles. And that is just endemic, uh, not only of markets, but also of free market participation, essentially, um, where humans, they're driven by emotions and sometimes they overshoot in a variety of different ways where, you know, 2017 being the most um, poignant example uh, in recent history as well. So I think, again, that's another element uh, that makes this space or, or this particular market so interesting, but also so, uh, again, contagious uh, to, to, to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that I think early on, even, you know, even with my own or our own kind of trying to figure out, you know, oh, what do, what do you do with these Bitcoins? Um, I, I ended up participating a lot in buying and selling computer equipment on the Bitcoin talk forum. Uh, that was probably one of the you know, there was this, uh, just people would, people would burn out, they'd get tired of mining and they would sell their mining rigs. And I would just try to scour and find the best, you know, deals for mining, mining rigs. And then I would run them for a while. And then eventually, you know, if I was trying to upgrade or do something, I would then sell my computer parts. So, and I also thought this is a great way to, you know, acquire Bitcoins. Um, I can take old computer parts and sell them. So I had old motherboards and, you know, computer chips and stuff. And, I mean, and, and that's also what really made it super fun. Um, I remember uh, on the forum specifically, there was some, uh, there was a guy I was talking, I put some, I put some CPU up. It was like just some Intel CPU, some Celeron or something that I had. And there was a kid in Finland who really wanted it. And I said, okay, well, I've never shipped anything international. Like, but sure, I'll send it to you. And, you know, I'm just on the forum, didn't know his real name or anything. And I just gave him a Bitcoin address and he sent me some Bitcoin and I mailed the CPU to him and he got it. And then he went on the reviews and said, yeah, you know, this guy's a good seller or honest. And uh, so there was a little, just this little community of people that to them, Bitcoin was worth something and they were willing to use it as money or, or in trade. And that just goes right with what you were saying, you know, um, you know, one of the cornerstones of, of Austrian economics is the theory of subjective value. You know, it's things are worth, uh, you can only judge something's value is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, so Bitcoins might be worthless to a bunch of people, but in that community at the time, hey, this is a, you know, this was useful as a medium of exchange for, you know, selling computer parts. Um, and so, that, you know, that was cool. Um, I have a lot of interesting memories like that of just buying and selling computer parts on, on Bitcoin talk forums and, you know, just based purely on the, the reputation systems that were there. Um, you could kind of over time get a feel for who was honest and who wasn't. And, uh, you know, and we got burned a few times. That always happens. But uh, but for you know the overwhelming majority of the, the uh, purchases and sales of mining and mining gear, um, 
were just being good deals and they worked out really well. So um, it was niche, but it was pretty fun. I think that's really interesting because I mean, you're essentially talking about how you um, debugged a lot of what you would see. So it's like fast forward to 2020. And if you were in, let's just say Hong Kong right now, I can easily send you Bitcoin for whatever reason. And it would get there in a extremely efficient and uh, cost-effective manner. Obviously, think there's been some improvements to the core code, you know, over that eight-year period. But you're in essence talking about how you proved out an initial, like hypothetical, where it's like white paper. I think this can offer or operate as a medium exchange, potentially a store of value. I don't know if that was something that was necessarily thought about um, within your particular community at that time. I know, obviously, given it has a fixed supply, that was something that was there from the beginning in terms of the white paper, but you guys were living it and verifying it and showing that, yes, this use case um, seems to have legs, at least in this you know, particular Petri dish, so that we can go to the next Petri dish and then the next one and the next one, and then gradually get us uh, to where we're at today, where I don't know how many billions of dollars is transacted over the Bitcoin network uh, way faster and way cheaper than conventional banks or the, or the legacy uh, SWIFT system or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier that, you know, Bitcoin is different things to different people. So, you know, back then that was, you know, my primary use case for Bitcoin was buying and selling computer parts and building and selling mining, mining rigs. Um, but there were people, there were definitely people around then that were, you know, really into it who, who thought, oh, this is going to be, you know, the cornerstone of the global monetary system in the future. And I was one of the people I was like, ah, hold your horses there, you know, like. <laughs> I, I think I remember posting on a, and there was a discussion on one of the threads on Bitcoin talk where I said, you know, the overall market cap of Bitcoin right now is 45 million. I was like, there's, there are yachts that are worth a lot more than that. Like, you know, you guys are getting a little bit of ahead of yourselves. Um, <laughs> so I was more, I was much more of a skeptic back then too, of, you know, this kind of narrative. I mean, there were definitely some people that were like, this is the end all be all and it's going to change everything. And, I kind of was like, yeah, it's interesting, it's cool. I don't know if it'll it'll do this. Um, and I mean, certainly there was also the um, you know the Silk Road was a big part of history that people don't talk about as much now, but for sure that was active then. Uh, and you know there were a lot of people on the forums that were pretty sketchy. There was a lot of you know people that were like, oh, uh, Bitcoin is this thing we can use anonymously and we can buy and sell drugs on the internet. And um, so you know that was actually something that was it was cool but it was also frustrating because that seemed to be the first thing that really captured the media attention of bitcoin uh back in 2011 2012 when you asked people in the mainstream who you know have you heard of bitcoin very quickly it was like oh isn't that that isn't that that internet like hacker drug money <laughs> and like that was like the dominant narrative in a lot of mainstream and it was it was very frustrating because i was like no it's there's a lot it's just a it's this program you can do all this stuff some people are using it like this but don't pay attention to them like this is cool and they were like no no this is this is bad this is all money laundering and drugs and stuff and but it's funny how that narrative changed too because you know nobody says bitcoin is anonymous anymore it's not i mean you literally have a ledger of every transaction that has ever happened permanently forever stored on bunches of computers all over the world. So if you're doing illegal activity, you just remember that's preserved forever on thousands <laughs> of computers all over the world. 
and it's definitely not anonymous. And so at least that's, that's one of the things that that's also changed is back then people still kind of thought, Oh, this is small. Nobody's going to look here. I'm using these addresses that don't have my name. That means I can do whatever I want with it. And, uh, you know, now there's a, now it's the other way around. I think, uh, I think law enforcement is, is happy to have a giant data set to be able to mine and figure those things out. And, uh, you know, that's a whole that's a whole another ball of wax if we want to get into the privacy discussion. But yeah, <laughs> we'll make well, it a little heady there. So yeah, for sure. I think if if we circle back to it, I think it's something that you know, if time per, permits, we will, um, or just you know, save it for a different day because I think it's one of those things that you can't decouple it from this particular space. Like that is the history uh, of one particular era of Bitcoin, but also at the same exact time, you know, it was very much rooted in you know, privacy, obviously cryptography being a huge component of it. So you can't decouple that from it, but it's very interesting to see the shift that it's gone through over these years as it becomes more mainstream, where now even myself, and I'm sure you've had similar experiences when talking to potential investors, it's like, hey, uh, this isn't necessarily private. And I would argue whenever people give pushback saying now, even to this day, that it's used for illicit behavior, illicit activities, that it's far more easy to track Bitcoin's illicit activities than if you're running the gauntlet of you know money laundering or whatever it is through all the different offshore bank accounts and sort of shadow banks and shadow companies um, that are set up around the world that have a far greater um, track record for a far longer time of being able to evade authorities uh, in this particular manner. So those are conversations that I'm sure you experience to this day, that I experience to this day, um, that could go on hours and hours. So uh, perhaps maybe we'll make that like a part due uh, or something. Yeah. <laughs> privacy for sure is a whole the whole a whole ball of wax like you said <laughs> exactly and there's tons of people that you know are for the hardcore uh dash style privacy and then there's others that say this is actually you know uh, uh I'm not sure uh it's detracting um from all the momentum that has been gained over the most recent years whenever it's kind of like crossed the chasm a little bit into the mainstream or at least into the mainstream mindset. Um, but with that said, so you're, you're in the early days, you're mining, it's still very much the wild west. At what point did you decide to uh, make, make the documentary uh, and what was your ultimate goal in making uh, the, the first documentary or one of the first documentaries ever um, that, that sort of discussed this phenomenon that is Bitcoin? Yeah, um, you know, so I was living and breathing on, on the forums. I was in there all day. I'm, you know, I was <laughs> probably one of the first guys who annoyingly talked about Bitcoin all the time. Now that now that's a type, but <laughs> um, but, uh, I, you know, my brothers, I would always tell my brothers about it. And they were like, hey, what's that Bitcoin thing? Oh, yeah, guess what happened? You know, this guy did this or, I, you know, this guy over here did that. And I would just tell them these, you know, internet drama stories of people that were doing things people were doing on the forums and whatnot. And uh, my brother Nick had just uh, finished a film project. He's a filmmaker. And um, we, uh, we were talking one day and he said, hey, I'm, you know, this sounds like it's interesting enough. Like maybe we should make a little film about this, like a little mini documentary or something like a half hour thing. I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I said, you know, Bitcoin's pretty tough to kind of wrap your head around. It'd be really cool to make, you know, a little like YouTube explainer video. Like we made like a half hour video, kind of talked a little bit about what Bitcoin is and how it works, maybe give a little glimpse into these things that I've just been talking about. 
And, uh, and I said, you know, at, at the time, the Bitcoin community was pretty small on the forums there. And, um, you know, so there were a few startup businesses, uh, notably um, BitInstant, uh, run by Charlie Schramm and, and a few others. And, um, you know, everybody on the forums was pretty friendly with each other. And I said, hey, I know some of these guys that are doing some of the first startups in Bitcoin. You know, maybe we could even get get a few interviews with them and it'd be, be perfect. We can make this little explainer movie and maybe put it on YouTube. Well, okay, let's do that. So my brother started coming over and just started filming. And we talked to Charlie um, and he said, yeah, you guys need to come out to New York uh, and, and see our offices and, and, you know, meet us there. So we took this trip to New York and uh, filmed with Charlie. And, you know, it was one of those things, right, as we got there, uh, things were kind of starting to heat up a little bit. And, um, you know, when one of the times when we were in their office, uh, there was, a you know, one of the bubbles kind of happened. And so they didn't even have the time to really talk to us. They were like, what? Yeah, the film crew's here. Ah, the computers are all overloaded. You know, we're getting way, many, way too many requests, way too many calls, and all this stuff is happening. My brother was like, this is awesome. All right, go, you know, keep the cameras rolling. And so he just started filming, filming, filming. And uh, just from there, we, we realized that we were kind of right there at the beginning of something that was much more than just a half hour documentary. And uh, so he just kept the cameras rolling and through, we, we, we met Roger Bear there. We met Jared Kenna, who was running Trade Hill, one of the first US-based exchanges for Bitcoin. At the time, Mt. Gox was the only real exchange where people were buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, but it was a real pain in the butt to get, uh, you had to wire funds to some holding company's proxy. And it was just really difficult. Like you couldn't easily buy Bitcoin at the time. And, um, so, you know, there were a lot of efforts, BitInstant was there, it was an effort as well to try to like make it easier for people in the U.S. to be able to buy and sell Bitcoin. And, uh, you know, through all those introductions, you know, one just kept meeting one person after the, after the other. And, you know, everybody at the time was willing to, to engage and talk about it. So we started filming and filming and that just spiraled into uh, the rise and rise of Bitcoin. Um, we ended up, we ended up flying to Japan. Uh, we filmed at Mount Cox. Uh, we flew down to Panama where, uh, Eric Voorhees, uh, at the time was, uh, running one of the, one of the most famous, uh, notorious, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin companies, Satoshi Dice, which was a, uh, one of the first of its kind where you could gamble, uh, using the Bitcoin blockchain itself. They had basically a list of addresses and each address had odds. And so, you know, you could pay the, pay the, pay, send, send, uh, send some Bitcoin to the address with the odds that you wanted to take. And then if you won, it would send payment back to, uh, back to you, uh, or send your prize back. And if you lost, it would send a tiny little fraction of Bitcoin just to let you know that, yeah, you lost. Um, but, uh, at the time that, that, uh, that service ended up being responsible for something like half of all Bitcoin transactions were running through Satoshi Dice, which was pretty, pretty fascinating. But we went, we just flew all over the world and, and, and interviewed all kinds of different people. And we, we made the rise and rise of Bitcoin. And um, my brother sent it out to a number of different uh, film festivals. We got into the Tribeca Film Festival in New York and premiered there. So it's pretty awesome. Had our had our 15 minutes of fame there, and uh, but uh, it was certainly fun. And and at the time, you know, I, I think the timing couldn't have been better. There was a lot of interest in Bitcoin at the time. The um, you know during our filming, the, uh, the FBI and the DEA took down the Silk Road. They busted the the drug market. 
So there was a lot of media and press about that. And it was, you know, Bitcoin was in the eye of, of a lot of the mainstream news. Uh, so our documentary was kind of perfect timing for that. And I feel really good about, you know, the impact that I think we've had because we did show a lot of different sides to Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I remember even make, during the time when we were making it, you know, it was very adamant about not just focusing on the Silk Road. I, don't, I think originally we didn't even want to feature it in there, but we just wanted to really show that Bitcoin is this technology and all these other things are how people are using this. But, you know, really it's, it's a computer network. It's like a big clock that just keeps ticking. And, you know, you can, you can, you can, use, you can use what it does for a lot of different things. What, uh, what year was the documentary? produced uh, came out in it came out in 2014 uh we had finished shooting in 2013 uh we spent a, quite a, quite some time in the edit um we had a lot of stories that didn't make it in unfortunately but um yeah it, it was released in in 2014 do you find people still uh still recognize you or still or still talk about that to this day uh maybe even like off like happenstancely or or yeah. even within the space as well so uh, it's probably my favorite thing in, in about about the documentary is these days if I go to a conference or something and some random person will come up to me um, and just be like, "Hey, are you the guy from the Bitcoin documentary?" I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, that's me." And they're like, "Dude, thank you so much. I watched that, and then it, like I totally got into Bitcoin after that, and it changed my life." And I'm like, "Yes, all right, great. Like this is I'm glad like somebody freed freed somebody maybe somehow from from." Uh, financial shackles because they maybe made an investment at the time and it worked out for them, I speculate. But, um, you know, that always, that always feels good. But these days, I don't know, there's, uh, e even the documentary now is dated. And uh, I like to joke that it's, you know, we had, we had Vitalik when he was still writing for Bitcoin magazine and was a Bitcoiner. Um, it's, it was pre-Ethereum that the, uh, that Rise and Rise of Bitcoin um, uh, came out, but it was right in the middle of, I think during our, during our, uh, during the premiere, uh, was right around the time when when Ethereum was just starting to kind of gain some traction. Gotcha. And we'll definitely come back to that topic uh, later as well, because I, I think um, to quickly divert, uh, that's one of the more interesting things whenever you and I just have general powwows and conversation about markets in general or specific projects, obviously not on the podcast, but just in our general lives is my, you know, your background is very much different to mine. So always find your perspective, especially from like a technological side. So, uh, so useful to be able to look at and understand things um, that maybe someone with a more traditional background like myself within finance or something like that might not necessarily be able to see because they just look at what's at you know, on surface level, they don't have the ability to kind of peel back the layers a little bit as well. Um, so we'll definitely touch into that. Um, so, okay, the documentary is done. Um, and then, so how did you find yourself to where you're at today? So we're going to speed up a little bit into the current day, but how did you find yourself saying like, all right, uh, I've kind of been here uh, almost at the beginning and spent a lot of time in this space, educating people about it. I want to further double down on this space, this technology, these beliefs I have, um, and start a technology company that will spin up, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the better data analytics and data providers within within the space underneath uh, Alt Tangent, which is which is a company that you run called BlockTap, but then also an investment firm as well. So, how did you go from, 
you know, the documentary to saying, uh, when was the, the right time, the inflection point where you're like, yep, I'm going to double down even further. Well, there was a period after the documentary where, you know, I like to say that was kind of where I fell away from Bitcoin for a while. And, um, you know, at the time there were a lot of, um, altcoins, a lot of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. other cryptocurrencies that were starting to launch. And I got kind of attracted to those. I thought, you know, oh, you know what, like, there's some things that I still didn't fully understand about Bitcoin. That, and then I was looking at these other projects and thought, oh, hey, that's, that's actually doing this faster. Or maybe this is a smarter way. Or maybe we can do this mining without, you know, using all this electricity. And you know, now I look back and these viewpoints are, to me, they're naive, but um, at the time it was one of the things where, you know, I, I got really attracted to uh, competitors and I kind of bought into this idea that, hey, you know, maybe, maybe Bitcoin is a 1.0 and there's some other technology that's going to displace the 2.0. And, you know, I've seen that happen a lot in tech uh, in general. So why not, you know, that, that might happen here. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was, I was keeping track of what, you know, what the, what, what was the right path, uh, if there is, if there is such a thing. So I got really into some of these alternative cryptocurrencies, um, notably, uh, some of the first proof of stake cryptocurrencies. Um, and I wrote software for them. I wrote, I wrote some block explorers for, um, NXT was one of them at the time. And, um, um, some of them related to that, um, and I was doing just kind of independent software development, working on those things, kind of really studying those things, looking at different consensus algorithms, like really kind of spending a lot of time thinking about proof of stake and how that works. And, you know, I did it kind of backwards. I was kind of convinced that proof of stake was a better path. And then I spent, you know, a long time thinking about it and working on things surrounding it. And, and then over time, after about a year and a half, I slowly kind of came back to Bitcoin and, um, and that's kind of really when we, we founded All Tangent Labs. Um, I, uh, you know, I have a longtime business partner, uh, Brian Mancini. He's our CTO at All Tangent. Uh, we'd worked together on a number of different startups in the past for many years. And um, uh, we found, we decided, you know, uh, we've been tinkering around with stuff in Bitcoin. You know, we'd written some early like uh, wallet software. We played around with you know, oh, maybe we should write some trading bots or, you know, had a lot of different ideas. And we saw a lot of these companies in, you know, 2016, 2017, were starting to actually get real venture, venture funding for, you know, launching projects or products that would use Bitcoin or other, or other cryptocurrencies. And we thought, well, you know, we're good, we're good at software and we have a lot of knowledge in the space. Like that's something we should be doing. Why, you know, instead of tinkering around, let's, let's build some real products. Um, so we founded All Tangent Labs, and um, we had a number of different ideas for products. Um, but uh, very early on, we realized a lot of them, uh, a lot of things we wanted to build. Kind of, we needed a data back back end. We wanted to have some data on on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, beyond, you know, just uh, having the blockchain on your computer. We wanted to be able to do some some analysis or, you know, derive some statistics and some some analytics. Uh, and at the same time, the markets, you know, the number of, there was just like Cambrian explosion of, of altcoins and tokens and all these things that happened. And all of a sudden, all these exchanges just started adding more and more and more trading pairs and more and more exchanges started popping up. And so uh, we, we started collecting them and we built really very quickly focused in on our first product, which was BlockTap, uh, BlockTap.io. 
Um, Blocktop is basically a, a market data aggregator. Um, we were collecting order books, trades, um, and then also some on-chain metrics, uh, initially for Bitcoin and some altcoins, but now nowadays just Bitcoin. And we kind of thought, hey, let's put these all into a giant data warehouse and uh, make it queryable. And, you know, maybe we can build a really interesting analytics site where you can, you know, query market data and on-chain data and try to derive some really interesting metrics, you know, all, all, all at once. Uh, and so, um, you know, Blocktop's been running now for about two and a half years. Uh, we have a pretty massive data set. Um, and, um, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of competing companies in the space for, for data as well. Um, I'd say we're, we're kind of one of the more niche ones, very focused on Bitcoin. Um, it seems that a lot of the market interest tends to be uh, more towards tokens and things like that on Ethereum. Um, but we're, you know, we're hunkered down and focusing on Bitcoin and, and that's, uh, you know, that, that's kind of our long-term, our long-term strategy with that as well. Um, and then along with that, um, you know, since, since I got into Bitcoin even, uh, you know, I've always had people asking me, um, hey, should I invest in Bitcoin? Hey, should I buy some Bitcoin? What's, you know, what's the deal with Bitcoin? Uh, you know, do you know where I can, you know, should I have this in my portfolio? Um, and so, um, we founded, uh, we started a, an alternative investment fund called uh, Maximalist Capital. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, from a digital assets perspective, it's conservative. We're focused on Bitcoin. Um, you know, the, uh, the only activity we really do is uh, we're active in, in options and, and some derivatives. And we try to go for uh, Bitcoin on Bitcoin returns. But really it was uh, created as a vehicle to give our partners exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, as an asset class. Um, and, you know, I used to say to people, oh, you know, it's kind of risky. It could crash to zero only invest, uh, you know, what you well, don't, don't, don't take my advice on investing. Don't, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you have some, some money that you might lose or forget about, um, then, then fine. But today, um, you know, there's been a lot of interest from traditional finance. I, I don't, uh, I don't think it's going away anymore, uh, you know, or I think, don't think the risk of Bitcoin going away is anything near as large as it was even five years ago. Uh, and, you know, the amount of people that have been asking about, you know, how do I invest in this uh, keeps growing and growing. And Bitcoin as an asset class is also one of the first that really retail investors were the first to the table. You couldn't easily buy it, um, but, you know, you could get a GPU and do some mining, or you could use one of these, you know, early sites, like I mentioned, like BitInstant or something and, you know, get a, get, get a, uh, go to a 7-Eleven and get a voucher and buy $10 worth of Bitcoin or something. So, uh, and then even today, you know, most brokers, you call them up and say, I want to buy some Bitcoin, you know, I mean, I think right now there's, 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 there's a, there's a few trusts that you can invest in and that's about it. Um, I think the writing on, is on the wall there. I think that's coming eventually, but uh, for now, Maximalist Capital is is there and is a is a is a vehicle for for our partners to get exposure to that asset. No, I totally agree. I mean, obviously, I think um, there's there's way more upside. And and again, this isn't investment advice from either myself or Daniel, but it's just our particular perspectives. But I think the the upside, the asymmetry, um, is definitely to the upside right now. Obviously, there's still a lot of risks. Uh, associated with Bitcoin, just given its volatile nature, it goes back to kind of a little bit more of those free capitalist 
uh, roots that we had mentioned before, which is just endemic of, you know, market cycles. It's going to go up, it's going to go down. But over time, at least what Bitcoin's been able to show in its short 10-year time horizon is that, you know, it's skewed to the upside. Um, so we think that there's definitely risk still associated uh, with it, just given the volatility where it can go up, it can be up 30% in one month, like January, and then it can be down, you know, 40% the next month, uh, or, you know, a month afterwards, like in March. But then again, now it is firmly back into the positive for year to date. So there's definitely cycles. But um, I agree with you that whenever you look at it strictly like, all right, what are the odds? Like, what's the probability that it's going to go to zero? Um, it's greatly diminished from where it was even two years ago, three years ago. Um, so I, I think that makes total sense uh, for me and probably for the listeners as well. So your investment company and also the data company, BlockTap, uh, is focused, has a particular heavy leaning towards Bitcoin. And I can assume that that is, that, that, that sort of was founded out of the work that you had done on some of those adjacent products, um, I'm sorry, projects, uh, after the, the documentary sort of came out. And I think it's really fascinating that you are looking at and working on proof of stake before it has become sort of like this avant-garde nouveau topic within the blockchain space that it is um, today where every single new project that is coming out, in particular, all the Ethereum killers and even Ethereum in and of itself is taking the leap to proof of stake um, versus proof of work. So I can assume that it came out of that. I would love to sort of hear about those experiences where it came, where you kind of had a realization to say, all right, in theory, this sounded really good, but in practice, there's, you know, limitation A, B, and C. And I don't think ultimately, you know, it's too far gone. It will need five to 10 years to sort of prove out and work out all those bugs. But Bitcoin in and of itself in its current stage is actually still viable for its base use case. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest uh, differences is when I, when I compare Bitcoin to other cryptocurrencies or digital assets or, or, or tokens or whatever um, is Bitcoin is to me, I mean, is interesting for its monetary properties and it's not about how, how many transactions per second can you get? You know, that's, that's a, that's a database metric. That's interesting for databases or um, you know, it, it's, it, and, and when you take that in the context of, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin's consensus is known as proof of work. It's basically, you know, lots of computers that are, that are competing with one another. They're spending electricity and, and, and essentially in a lottery. And every once in a while, somebody wins that lottery, gets mm -hmm. some new bitcoins, and and those those that goes on to the uh, ledger. Um, Can you explain the difference very quickly uh, to proof of work systems versus proof of stake systems, just for maybe some of the really new uh, listeners that might be on that are like quickly kind of like googling what these what these you know buzzwords are in the background. Sure. Yeah, I was, I was and I was getting there, and it, it's it's hard <laughs> to do because it's it's one of those. It, it, it's a it's another rabbit hole it's a it's a thread to pull but um you know the at the core of 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 something that you know what makes bitcoin so interesting is uh you have this thing called global consensus you <laughs> which is 
how do you imagine a, a Google Doc that the entire world is using, um, and uh, you know everybody agrees that uh, everybody needs to have a, a, the same copy of everything that's ever happened. Um, oh man, this is going to be <laughs> this is this is the tough one. To, let me think. What's the what's the best way of doing this without getting into a two hour rambling? Uh, I think just keep it super like super simple. I mean, at the at the core of it, uh, for anyone that wants to really dive deeply, there's plenty of resources. But it's like proof of work in essence is what you're talking about. There's computers distributed throughout the you know the world, right. essentially racing to solve a mathematical puzzle so that they'll be rewarded. Um, you know, with some fraction of Bitcoin, which has become more and more sliced, obviously, with the most recent halving. Um, and then, you know, proof of stake systems are, are, are different from there. So I think like super, <laughs> super uh, to the point and, and high level, and we'll just let yeah, the curious I mean, Bitcoin, listener. Bitcoin is powered by electricity, basically, if you want to take it as simple as possible, all these computers all over the world, are burning a lot of electricity in order to take turns being able to process some transactions or verify some transactions. Um, the thing is, based on the work that they're doing, you can measure how much work was put into that. So we know, you know, roughly how much electricity is being spent in order to, uh, you know, verify transactions in order to, to for, for Bitcoin to keep moving forward. Um, proof of stake, is, the inspiration was, hey, that's cool. Can we do the same thing without using all this electricity? And so uh, how do you do that? Well, instead of people having a lot of computers, why don't we just give them you know, tokens instead? And the amount of tokens that you have will be equivalent to having that many computers. And so instead of, you know, I have 50 computers and I'm 50 times more powerful than this person who has one computer, you could say I have 50 coins, so I'm 50 times more powerful than the person who has one coin. And so if you think about proof of stake as a simulation of proof of work is kind of an early way that, oh. that people were kind of trying to compare it. Um, the problem is that proof of stake is kind of, uh, how do you, there's no external way to measure uh, the truth. And, you know, it, it's a prickly thing to kind of get into this as well, but um, the, uh, a, a more simple way to look at it is uh, with a proof of stake system, you have to first get some, get some stake. Uh, you have to first get some coins. You have to buy them from somebody or you have to buy them from an exchange. Um, how do those coins first come into circulation? Well, pretty much every proof of stake project that exists had some sort of a crowd sale. Somebody somewhere decided, I'm gonna have this system. And in order for this to work, I first have to create all these virtual mining machines and distribute them to everybody. So that in itself is impossible to do in a fair way. There's no, there's no way that you can fairly create a bunch of tokens and then distribute them to your friends and say, oh, we have this fair decentralized kind of network. Bitcoin, on the other hand, didn't have the same problem. Bitcoin was, hey, you got some electricity, bring it to the table and you can participate like anybody else. So a lot of times when people say, oh, these permissionless networks, um, one of the aspects of Bitcoin's permissionlessness is that you know, anyone anywhere in the world with, with access to electricity uh, and, and mining equipment 
Uh, it used to be just computers and graphics cards. Today, it's mining equipment. So there is a barrier to, to mining entry, obviously, is, is getting some mining equipment. But that's, that's all it takes to participate in the consensus. In a proof of stake system, if you want to participate in the consensus, you, are, you have to buy tokens from someone. Uh, and if you're not part of the original crowd sale or you know, distribution or insider VC token sale <laughs> or whatever it is, uh, then your only other option usually is you know, on an exchange or something like that. And it's, it's you know, in some ways, maybe that accessibility is better, but in some it's different. But ultimately, I, I, I want to clarify one thing. Proof of stake systems can work. I mean, and they do work. Um, they just are, they work for different purposes and they have completely different security assumptions. And the security assumptions may not matter very much if you're playing a video game or you're, you know, doing some airline miles or something. Um, but they do matter when you are trying to, uh, build a new monetary system for the world to use. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, that's where I really feel that, uh, you know, proof of work uh, is, is much more secure um, and, and measurable uh, than proof of stake in terms of its security. And, um, you know, for, for Bitcoin, it's, it's appropriate. Um, for other networks, you know, uh, I mean, if you want, if, if, if transactions per second or, uh, you know, how many dumping your tokens on clueless retail investors is what's more important to you than I uh, sure, you know, proof of stake seems to be the, the, the choice of, of a lot of projects. Um, and that again goes with, you know, my general assumption that, you know, Bitcoin is interesting for Bitcoin's really more of like a commodity. It's like a digital commodity. Pretty much every other altcoin to me is more like venture capital. Uh, almost every other altcoin has some unknown founder or, uh, you know, a group of people that did a crowd sale or a launch and, you know, they kept 50% of the tokens for themselves in order to fund development for the following year uh, and then sold the other ones to fund a project. And that looks a lot more like venture capital. That looks a lot more like, um, you know, uh, even even bypassing traditional venture capital. I think that was all the all the rage a few years ago is, hey, this is a new fundraising model. You know, uh, say you're going to build something, uh, issue a bunch of tokens, sell them, and then use the proceeds of that sale to fund your project. And that's what a lot of projects did. Um, I often liken that to, you know, hey, I'm going to build an airline, so let me sell a bunch of frequent flyer miles until I have enough to build my first plane. And as you can imagine, that model doesn't always work very well. And pretty much, I think the majority of projects that launch this way fail to ever build their first plane. Um, but I put them in an entirely different category than Bitcoin. And I think that's something that still hasn't happened largely is, you know, people still lump everything together in, oh, digital assets. Um, you know, there's digital assets, there's tokens, there's these different networks that have different purposes, but Bitcoin is more the reserve digital currency among all digital assets. Uh, a lot of people will, you know, go into and out of Bitcoin as their as their kind of holding or their 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 goal trading a lot of other uh, assets or tokens or cryptocurrencies is really to increase their Bitcoin holdings. Um, if you ask people, you know, what will be around in five years, what will be around in ten years, 
uh, in regards to a lot of these other projects, I, you know, I think a lot of them would say with more high likelihood that Bitcoin will be, will be around. Uh, and that's because Bitcoin is very kind of conservative and slow moving and its focus is, you know, the development focus is always around, you know, security, security, security. Um, the threat model is, you know, state and nation level uh, actors and attackers. Um, you know, some of the other networks, not so much. No, I, I completely agree um, with a lot of things that you said right there as well. And, and obviously our conversations over the years have sort of helped shape um, that particular narrative. I, I agree that there is a, there's a time and place uh, for proof of stake type tokens or, or technology in and of itself. Um, and you've seen some of these trade-offs like that you were talking with, with probably the most uh, pronounced uh, example being uh, EOS, where you know the they essentially traded uh, decentralization in some frame or fashion uh, for efficiency. You know, with only having 21 node operators versus you know anyone across the world uh, that has access to electricity, like you said, and now a mining rig can participate within Bitcoin. Where they said, all right, here's 21, and we're going to do that because it's going to increase the throughput. Uh, for some of the different applications that they thought that were going to be built uh, or going to be built on on EOS, so uh, a, a time and place for that. Um, Ethereum continues to sort of dominate the virtual machine um, platform space, um, but I know some of the initial reservations or not reservations, uh, you know, logic that brought you back to Bitcoin wasn't just um, you know seeing Bitcoin as that you know store of value that use case with excellent security attached to it, but it was also some of the technological limitations, uh, yeah. you know, as well. And I think probably the most pronounced example that you and I have had conversations about over the years has been, um, has been Ethereum. So was Ethereum one of those ones that you looked at and studied and analyzed in the early days, but saw um, not red flags, but some of the disconnect between how they had that built from a technology side to in the early days to where they're essentially at now and like still what seems to be looking to uh, patch up a lot of the holes that they had within that technology in the early stages. Yeah, I mean, I think the one of the most fundamental realizations I had a long time ago was, and, and I think a lot of people believe this as well, is, you know, when we talk about blockchains, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a a historical uh, record of all transactions that have happened. Um, and if you think about that, you know, if this is going to last 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, blockchains just keep growing and they keep growing indefinitely. Um, so naturally, if you want your, you know, if you want it to last a long time, you're going to have to consider scaling or how, how, how much data needs to be processed and uh, you know, one of the things about Bitcoin is when you when you download the Bitcoin software and, and you set it on your computer, it goes through and it downloads every single transaction that happened since the beginning of time. But not only that, it goes through and it processes and verifies and does all the crypt cryptography and does all the checks and, and, and processes everything. So it does 10 years worth of processing and it takes about, you know, eight hours today on a modern computer. Um, to to make sure that you have the same record of, of what happened as everybody else. 
one of the core problems with competing projects that are advertising features and all oh, we can do all these things uh, and, and you know ethereum is, is probably the biggest of these is hey we're going to do all these other features we're going to add tons and tons of features and functionality and we're going to just store this all in the blockchain too and what happens there is you put a whole bunch of things in the blockchain that you're going to now require people to keep and verify forever. The more you put in there, the, the more over time your project gets bloated and takes longer and longer to verify. And what that means is over time, you know, today I can still go to Best Buy and buy a budget laptop and install Bitcoin and get the whole entire transaction history. If I want to do the same thing with Ethereum, a budget laptop is not going to cut it. I'm going to need to buy some pretty hefty hard drives and SSDs and spend spend a good amount of money. Um, and you know, there's pruning and there's all these you know ways that you can sell. Well, you don't have to keep everything, but that also starts to compromise the security and the validity of the ledger. So basically, by putting all these features and bells and whistles on here and advertising them as all these other additional things you can do, what you're doing is you're you're setting the path for basically a dead end where. Uh, you're not going to be able to scale it properly and 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 it's going to become more centralized and what I mean by that is you know as the constraints and the requirements for uh, running a blockchain uh, or running a cryptocurrency uh, node become uh, keep growing you get fewer and fewer and fewer people running that if uh, if I want to get the you know the detailed history of some transactions that happened in ethereum in the first two years or so there's very few nodes that have that live online where I can actually pull that. And that's just because the requirements are just, I mean, right now the full, full archival node, uh, Ethereum blockchain is bigger than four terabytes. I mean, you, and, and you can't run them on a regular hard drive. You need to raid some SSDs or to get, a, you know, in, uh, enterprise SSDs in order to store that. Well, what that means is now you get fewer and fewer computers running that software. And again, when I go back to what I was saying, the threat model, if I want to shut down a network and there's only a handful of big nodes that have the full history running on them, well, then that's a much smaller set of targets that I need to attack and or shut down. It becomes more and more centralized, less and less distributed, and there's fewer and fewer nodes that end up um, keeping the whole history of what's happened. Bitcoin, there's been a big focus on trying to keep the requirements uh, for scaling linear. So that, you know, uh, you know, the goal really being that any at any given point in time in the near future, you could go buy just a mid range laptop and be able to sync synchronize with the network and be able to run a full validating node of Bitcoin. Uh, the same cannot be said for a lot of these other projects to some people that doesn't matter because they're not interested in the, you know, running the network they're not interested in that threat model they're not interested in, in having that level of security they're looking more at uh, I think they're more used to kind of a service provider model where they're like, well, somebody else will host that. I just need my thin client and my browser to be able to, you know, buy and sell these tokens or do these kind of things. And that's fine, but don't be surprised if one day that gets very easily shut down or, or doesn't work or starts having scaling issues. Um, and I mean, we've seen that. I mean, if uh, Ethereum as, as an example, they're literally rewriting it. <laughs> Ethereum, Ethereum 1.0 is essentially being sunset and, and Ethereum 2.0 is going to be the new shiny version of Ethereum, which gives them a fresh start. I'm sure they'll use a bunch of knowledge learned um, 
and you know make things more efficient and figure out some additional scaling there's some cool research happening for different scaling options some of that might even spill into other cryptocurrencies and back into bitcoin but you know largely um if you look at ethereum 1.0 it's it's basically being sunset because from a technological standpoint it, it can't scale and it's kind of uh you know, a lot of the original promises were just never delivered. Uh, they just kicked the can into a 2.0. <laughs> yeah, I think that that was always one of the more interesting uh, realizations that I had kind of like talking with you um, about how you viewed that and even, you know, which kind of allowed me to have a little bit deeper of conversations talking to other people. And anyone that, I, that I've spoken to uh, over at Scilab at, at Carnegie Mellon, so we're based here in Pittsburgh for, for the listeners, and we've got a great sort of cybersecurity, but also, um, you know, pretty much anything in, in relation to software engineering school at Carnegie Mellon. And I'm fortunate enough to know uh, the individual that heads up a lot of the blockchain initiatives there. And even him and I were talking about Ethereum and what seems to be its killer app now. So back in 2017, the killer app that was going to uh, essentially catapult Ethereum ahead of Bitcoin was you know, decentralized fundraising. Just like you said before, we don't need venture capital dollars anymore. We'll just go straight to the horse right there. We'll go straight to the retailers and we'll use this new shiny platform to issue tokens and then we'll, we'll build it and they will come, which obviously did not end up materializing in a lot of ways, but also at the same exact time drew the ire of regulatory bodies here within the U.S. that has now gone back and retroactively started to deem a lot of what they've been doing as illegal uh, securities issuances as well. But whenever I was talking, one of the things that is now new and avant-garde is uh, decentralized finance, so DeFi for anyone that might not not necessarily um you know have heard of it or, or under have understanding within it it's a wide ranging topic um that i won't try to summarize here within a five second spiel but it touches everything you know from from lending to money market rates to a wide wide sphere um, and they think that that is now what's going to be Ethereum's killer app that's going to take it to the next level. And even speaking with some people that have, again, the programming chops uh, to look at the code and say, this isn't ready. This isn't ready at all. You cannot put a significant amount of real world value like a mortgage for a billion dollar property or a billion dollar bond on that and realistically expect that it won't get hacked and or stolen. And it was before that you kept seeing a lot of these, uh, you know, projects essentially have their code exploited and have their funds stolen. I know one, I can't remember the name, but it had like $25 million stolen from it that was ultimately returned to it. But it was before that where a lot of the researchers are saying, I could steal this, I could overload the system right now and take advantage of it. So again, it kind of goes back to what you're talking about to where for some reason or another, the base case or the base technology that Bitcoin was able to develop back in the early days, which you know has upgraded over time, has stood the test of time, whereas Ethereum still is having to try to figure it out because of all these additional bolt-ons that they're doing to try to find that killer app that's going to give it um, kind of its staying power over the long term. 
Yeah, I would say, I mean, the history of Ethereum is just ripe with hack after hack after hack. I mean, I don't, I've lost count of how many hundreds of millions of dollars have been lost. Um, and actually that also was uh, the turning point for, for me when, you know, at first I was pretty excited about Ethereum. I thought it was pretty cool, but the, uh, the infamous DAO hack was one of the very first uh, early ones. There was a, somebody launched a smart contract and it was still kind of a novel idea. And they said, Hey, we're going to have this decentralized kind of uh, uh, venture fund where everybody can put, dump a bunch of Ethereum into the smart contract. And then we're going to have votes and people can come up with a proposal for a project to fund. And then whoever has, you know, tokens in here or ever deposited Ethereum, we're going to get to vote who gets what funding for these projects. And so it, you know, it was everybody, uh, all these uh, early founders or insiders or people who, you know, had uh, large Ethereum stacks early on, uh, they just dumped tons of ether into it. I think it, I can't remember exactly. I want to say it had like a 10 or 11% of all Ethereum was in the smart contract at the time. And then somebody hacked the smart contract and started draining all the Ethereum. And people lost their minds. Vitalik, you know, asked the exchanges to stop trading. And it's famously is known as the DAO hack, D-A-O. Um, I encourage anybody to uh, listening to, to do some research and read about it. Um, because it was the, it, it was re really kind of this fundamental uh, fork in the road, no, no pun intended there, <laughs> where um, the a bunch of the developers came together and decided uh, to uh, bail out that smart contract. And what they effectively did is they said, um, you know, we're, we're going to uh, undo this contract. Uh, we're going to use some fancy words so it doesn't seem like we're invalidating the transaction or undoing it. But basically, they gave all the investors in this smart contract a mulligan and let them get all their money back. Uh, at that point in time, some people that were running Ethereum nodes said, no, this is, you know, you're playing favorites here. You can't cherry pick who you want to bail out on these things. You're basically saying that the developers have control over the network. That's not decentralized. You can't pick who gets money back if, if some hacker hacked a smart contract. It wasn't a bug in Ethereum itself. It was a bug in the smart contract. And so at that point in time, when that code went into effect, some nodes split off the network and decided to keep the smart contract in its hacked state and allow the hacker to keep that. And that's when Ethereum Classic was born. Uh, that was actually one of the first instances really where we had a blockchain where there was, you know, people disagreed on how to go forward. Some people went with the mulligan, the majority of people did, uh, and then some did not. And so all of a sudden, at some point, there was the, you know, the history forked and then you had two Ethereums. And Ethereum and Ethereum Classic are both still running right now. Uh, they both have the same scalability issues. They've done some different things. But uh, that, to me, was a real wake-up call that, hey, um, there's a, there are definitely some people in charge here. Uh, they, you know, a, a bunch of insiders effectively uh, voted themselves their money back from a bad investment. And I don't want... I don't really believe this is a robust technology if this is the case. Now, they never did it again. Subsequent hacks have happened. People have lost hundreds of millions of dollars, um, but they did not get bailed out. And the circumstances of some of the subsequent hacks were, you know, even to the point where it was an accident where somebody said, oops, I messed this thing up. I didn't even want this to happen. But they didn't get a do-over. They didn't get their money back. And, you know, to me, that's just 
a, a, a spot on the history of, of Ethereum that will never be able to be lived down. Um, now that obviously at the time spawned lots of discussions about, well, governance became this big word to discuss in, in distributed systems based on blockchains. Do we have governance uh, in consensus? How do we determine if a theft happens, should we roll that back? If, uh, if somebody hacks a piece of software, should we roll that back if we can? And you know, these are kind of things that end up being circular arguments because they are, you know, well, we're decentralized, so nobody's in charge unless we want somebody to be in charge to be able to do the right thing. And the right thing is this arbitrary thing that we can't really agree on. And having a democratic vote of, you know, how many people want that to happen doesn't always give you the best result, considering that there may be just a bunch of oligarchs in this system who want their own money back, so they vote for it. So, um, you know, it gets very, very messy, and I don't really think those debates are going away. People are still talking about governance all the time. Uh, some of the things you were talking about, too, with, you know, all these DeFi and lending and, and all these interesting contracts is you can just get into these very complex scenarios where it's impossible to even predict the types of hacks that can occur. If you, you know, chain three different smart contracts that have three different functions together, somebody might find a way to front run using that based on, you know, when blocks are being solved or, and, you know, the, the more complexity, the less, the less security that there is. I mean, that's just an axiom of computers in general over time is complexity is the enemy of security. So, um, you know, Ethereum and, and a lot of other projects certainly are very complex. Um, you know, I think there's, we're going to mitigate those things. We're going to figure out how to do certain things in a much safer way. I mean, that's making progress and what it's about. But again, going back to Bitcoin's purpose as uh, you know, a monetary reserve in the long run, you don't wanna be playing games like that. You don't wanna be introducing unnecessary risks into the system. Um, you know, with, with other things, you know, Ethereum is startup culture. It's move fast and break things. And so are a lot of these other blockchain contract, or, uh, uh, projects. Um, so with, with that, sort of notion or, or touching on what you kind of talked about, um, you know, Bitcoin being an alternative monetary system. Um, where do you see Bitcoin in five years from now, 10 years from now? You know, obviously you're uh, very optimistic on it, but I'll be curious if you have any, um, any sort of like just speculations or thoughts as to what would it, it could eventually evolve into besides you think it'll continue to be here. It'll continue to, you know, grow in adoption and stuff like that. I think, you know, we can all, we can all agree that that's probably table stakes based upon the conversation um, that we have here. So I'd just be curious if you had any sort of uh, any sort of thoughts um, and, and what it might look like, uh, you know, five or 10 years moving forward. I mean, I definitely think we're going to see more adoption. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of challenges ahead. Um, I think right now people in Bitcoin want things like the Lightning Network to be a panacea that's going to solve all these problems. And I think that's a little naive. Um, it has, you know, the scalability of Bitcoin, how to uh, onboard a lot of people to using Bitcoin uh, is a tough problem. There's only so many transactions you can do on the base layer. Um, so I guess let me rewind even a little bit and say, you know, even during the time when we were doing the documentary, um, 
I was buying and selling things, you know, computer parts directly with Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, one of the narratives at the time was, oh, soon, you know, stores are just going to be putting QR codes up and you'll be able to scan it with your phone and pay with Bitcoin. And what we didn't realize really at the time was that, you know, the blockchain itself is not scalable. It can't, it can do something like seven or eight transactions per second or something. It's not, it is not, uh, it doesn't make sense to, um, preserve and store every single little transaction for every little thing that happened globally on thousands of computers for the rest of time. It doesn't make any sense. So Bitcoin has already gone down the path since then of uh, essentially becoming a settlement network um, where, you know, I think in the long run, we'll see Bitcoin the way it is today, the just raw transactions on the, on the blockchain will be, uh, will become more and more valuable. You know, I, I do expect Bitcoin's price to appreciate just for a whole number of reasons. The mechanics of the system are in such a way that it, it kind of has to. Um, but I expect that will, you know, start to limit the types of transactions, at least from, a, a, you know, what kind of, you know, I think you'll see fewer and fewer people using Bitcoin to pay for something directly. Um, however, I, I really believe that second and third layer networks built on top of Bitcoin uh, are where a lot of the transactional activity are going to happen. Uh, Lightning Network is right now the, the kind of main one. And if you want to think of Lightning Network as kind of a, a secondary network layer that's built on top of Bitcoin where you can send some Bitcoins into this network and then uh, shuffle them around in that network, kind of like a big thing of abacus uh, uh, beads where you can shuffle the beads around between different people. And um, this allows you to, you know, send transactions back and forth without uh, putting any load or, or without having to store them forever on the blockchain, um, only the entry and exit. Uh, I think that we'll see layers built on top of that even, um, or, or other secondary and third layers. Uh, that then allow Bitcoins to be used uh, for for buying and selling goods a little bit more. Uh, but I, I do still think that's a way off. Um, you know, in terms of, um, th there's still a lot of acceptance that has to happen, that Bitcoin is, you know, a real thing and that it is uh, suitable for a store of value. Uh, you know, a lot of people that are in Bitcoin hardcore, are already, you know, sold on that, or they've seen price appreciation and they're, you know, this, you know, makes sense. Uh, and certainly, you know, we, I think, what, what do we have the, I think the Fed just uh, dumped 5 trillion into the stock market. We're, we're at all time highs today, aren't we? Is a, something, after, something like that. I, I <laughs> riots and businesses shut down for four months and it's tough we're, to keep we're at all time yeah. highs. So, <laughs> Um, certainly, we are on the cusp of testing whether the theories about Bitcoin's role as an uh, alternative monetary system um, are, are going to probably be tested within the next five years. Uh, I, I put that prediction forth that we're going to start to see uh, you know, whether it's actually suitable for uh, an alternative global currency uh, reserve system. Um, how that will play out, I don't know. I, I think I have... I have some fears that uh, Bitcoin will be politicized again. We don't really hear too much anymore about the Silk Road or the, you know, Bitcoin is used for these bad things, but that's always on the horizon. There's always the people that have a vested interest in demonizing it and, you know, saying, oh, you know, XYZ country that we don't like is using it for XYZ thing that we have sanctions on or whatever. 
And, um, you know, and then of course all the social narratives too of, oh, you know, Bitcoin isn't green, it's gonna boil the oceans and, and all these things. And, um, you know, these narratives kind of take hold sometimes and uh, people are very quick to latch on to frenzied things these days. So I, I worry that Bitcoin is actually weaker to social attacks than, um, you know, than, than, the, than the typical kind of computer nerd things that we like to think about in terms of Bitcoin security. Um, in terms of altcoins and other coins, I, they're not going to go away ever. Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, the, uh, there's, there's just so, there's, there's always new people. And <laughs> anytime there's new people, new people come into something and they go, oh man, I'm late to this party. I missed the boat. And then there's a new shiny thing that promises to let you be early, just like the old timers were. And people do that. And then it repeats itself over and over. There's always a freshman class of, of crypto people uh, who are just learning and who, you know, I mean, even, even number bias has a big effect. You know, one Bitcoin is around $10,000 today. Um, but, you know, this, this Bitcoin cash is only $200. Maybe I'll buy one of these and it will be $10,000 one day. And like that psychology is extremely powerful. And I think it's more powerful than a lot of people give credit. Um, you know, round numbers, things like that too. I mean, look at penny stocks. <laughs> I totally, I totally agree. And I, I think not just like the high numbers, but also being able to buy uh, an entire thing of something. It's like, okay, well, I've only got a hundred dollars to invest and you know, XYZ digital asset is only one buck a digital asset. I can get a hundred of those myself versus, you know, whatever fraction of Bitcoin um, I can get for that. At the end of the day, you're still investing a hundred dollars, you know, with, you know, different return expectations. Um, so there's not much difference. You're still making a hundred dollar investment. But I think that that notion of I've got some, you know, a whole of something uh, is another thing that plays in psyche, which I'm sure has been discussed, like within behavioral finance as well. Yeah, I mean, and even going back to our, our point that we've touched on a few times, you know, Bitcoin and not only Bitcoin, but cryptocurrencies are different things to different people. Uh, a lot of people just trade and they're just trying to make money trading and they don't, you know, they're just trying to make USD trading. They don't really care about, I, I, remember, reading a, I remember reading a tweet that said something like, boy, if Tezos keeps going up, I might actually look up what it does one day. And <laughs> I was laughing about it because it's true. I mean, there's traders that they don't care. They're, they're trading. They're trading to make money. And they, these things are extremely volatile. A lot of the tokens, you know, it's not, you, can, you can buy some random little thing and then have it go 10x or 50x if it's crazy times. Um, and, you know, Sometimes the technology, people don't care. It's enough to just have a marketing brochure. Like EOS is like the dumbest trash I've ever seen. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> but, it, but it made a lot of people a lot of money. And you're not going to convince those people that it was a dumb project because they made a lot of money. And that's what was their goal. So it's like, well, it didn't matter if it was a technological dead end or completely centralized. Like all those things that matter only matter to somebody who really cares about technology or has some ideological bent on it. Um, I mean, and I've certainly, I, that's me. <laughs> I, I originally got into it for more ideological reasons or, or those things. So, you know, there've been plenty of times where I was like, oh, I'll never invest in that, that won't work. And then it makes 
tons of money and I'm like, mm, I'm, mm -hmm. yeah, you're like, ah, I should have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, then at the same time, you know, some of it's not even around anymore. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, I, I was right in the long run. It did fail and it's basically gone now. But, um, you know, that's the difference between essentially gambling and just trying to pick penny stocks or pick these tokens to try to, you know, catch a, catch a, catch a crazy uh, appreciation event uh, versus having a long-term kind of vision and, a, you know, long, a long-term, uh, long time preference, low time preference. Uh, and that's, that's something that I think Bitcoin also teaches you over time. It's, you know, people are, People engineering Bitcoin are, are focused on the long term. Bitcoin is, is being engineered to be a project that lasts many generations. Uh, you know, people say, oh, you know, it doesn't have all these features. It's slow moving and, and it's so focused on security. But yeah, that's because people want Bitcoin to last. It's, it's really, truly being engineered and designed to be stable enough and secure enough to serve as a, as a reserve currency system, uh, a monetary system. So, um, you know, with that, with that long-term kind of vision, that's, that's, I think, what makes Bitcoin the most investable asset in the class over the long period of time. It's, it is uh, certainly the most conservative thing by orders of magnitude in the entire crypto space, if you want to define it that way. Um, I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't do uh, a better summation uh, of Bitcoin and the technology, but also the mentality of the long-term stakeholders uh, within uh, that particular space better than myself. So, you know, with that, uh, I think we'll, I think we'll just wrap it up. I think that was an amazing, <laughs> that was an amazing conclusion, not only of sort of the conversation that we've taken a couple different, uh, windy roads, but ultimately coming back to the central focal point where there's a reason why individuals, um, like me and you have a very heavy emphasis and, and focus, uh, not just in our personal lives, but also obviously in our professional lives, um, on this, this asset that, that is Bitcoin. Um, for all those for all those reasons. So I just want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to come on here and sort of jammer with me about different topics, you know, related to digital assets. I'm sure we could go on and on and on. Um, but I do appreciate you taking time and, and being the inaugural guinea pig of the uh, Crypto Muay Thai podcast. Awesome. Yeah. And maybe uh, we'll get into some Muay Thai and stuff next time too. <laughs> absolutely. 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 I mean, that's what, that's what it's here. That's what it's here for. So next time we have you on, we'll definitely get a chance to, uh, to, to talk about a little bit more fun stuff, you know, like Muay Thai and also um, Kyoshin Karate, right? Uh, Shotokan. Yeah. Shotokan Karate as well. So we'll, we'll have, uh, we'll have an opportunity to sort of touch in all that good stuff uh, next time we have you on. All right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Christopher. All right. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon, Daniel. All right. Take care.